The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Philippians 1, 1-11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ." filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, David. Well, we're beginning a new series in a letter that is called Philippians. And uh, I'm very excited about this. Um, most of you are like, you're a pastor, aren't you supposed to be excited about every passage in the Bible? Uh, I am excited about this letter particularly because it has played a very important part in my life. Uh, I was trapped this, uh, thank you, I was sick. Some of you are so kind to send me emails and texts. Um, I was very sick last weekend. Um, Saturday to Tuesday, didn't even leave my room. Uh, I was so ill. I'm not contagious now. Some of you are still like when you see me, you're like turning your head this way. (laughs) Promise I don't have anything anymore. Uh, mysterious, odd illness, um, but it was interesting how much isolation I had forced, uh, not the kind of isolation some of you are craving to get away from everybody and everything, but the kind that I was forced into with all my thoughts uh, and not just, I couldn't like hold a book, you know, it's one of those sicknesses, you don't, you can't just like read a book because your head hurts and you're just, oh, it was just awful. And um, it's just complete isolation. So what do I do? I read articles about loneliness. And um, one of the things I, uh, one, one of the things that I've talked to, thank you for the laughs. I pre- you know, I always appreciate the laughs. Um, I don't get many in my life. But I, I will tell you, one of the things that's important that you've heard, some of you, if you're visiting this morning, uh, one of the things I talk about often is an epidemic in our uh, city as well as our country, and I would say even the world, is loneliness. And I don't say that in jest, and I didn't just look up articles. They just kind of found me. And one that was interesting was called, To Beat Loneliness, Contact Must Be Real, Not Virtual. Especially someone who's isolated in a room, no one wants to touch me for days, uh, even further beyond. Uh, This is a really interesting title from the Wall Street Journal, Susan Pinker. This is what she talks about. She's talking about how isolation is connected to depression, and how the, since the 70s that the, that the percentage of depression connected to isolation has just skyrocketed. Few public health initiatives aim at combating loneliness. 
despite the fact that it's, the risk, it's riskier to health and survival than cigarette smoking or obesity. It's also a taboo topic. Doctors don't often ask about it, and when, we might, uh, when they might, we might not fess up, even if they did. And there's a fine line between loneliness and exclusion, and who wants to admit that? And then she goes into the study of depression, particularly in middle-aged adults and the percentages of that. And here's where she comes out. How often people get together with friends and family or didn't, it turned out to be the key to defeating their depression and loneliness. What's more, the researchers discovered that the more in-person contact that there was in present, the less likely the specter of depression is in the future. People who had face-to-face contact with children, friends, and family as infrequently as every few months had the highest rates of the, um, of the disease. Those who connected with people in person at least three times a week had the lowest. And here's the interesting thing. She's discussing this with one of the doctors. The doctor says, this is the beauty of it, Dr. Teo told me. The more often they got together in person, the better off they were. Of course, as Dr. Teo said, phone and email are still great for making social plans, but to keep dark and dangerous thoughts at bay, you have to leave your desert island now and then and then be there in the flesh. Here's what's so fascinating in this. Even recently, in countless articles on this, you know what pops up? This is such an epidemic, not just here, but in the UK. The UK has even created what's called a ministry of loneliness. A person who addresses this specifically. Sounds like almost something from like, you know, Monty Python. Here's the ministry of loneliness, right? But it's a real thing. They're people. They're having to address it with what? Not an idea. Don't just go jogging, which helps, but with a person to identify with that. Here's, here's what's fascinating about this letter. Paul is writing this letter from prison. I don't know if you caught that little catch in there about his imprisonment. He's writing, it's one of four letters that he writes from prison. Imagine the isolation. And many people think, in, in our context, we would think, man, a pastor in prison, that's not going to work out for the church. But here's what Paul is trying to get at here. He's being imprisoned for the gospel, for actually proclaiming what is called the good news of Jesus. And he's been put in prison. And as he's writing there, imagine the isolation. This church says, we are going to connect to Paul. He is connected to them. They connect to him. So much so that they don't just send gifts. They don't just say, hey, we'll send. They send a person, even named in here called Epaphroditus, to address his heart. And so riddled all through this, even in the first 11 verses, if you're a little bit blown away by like, is this a cheesy letter? It's not. There's a deep thankfulness, a deep affection, a thankfulness that Paul has towards these people. And it fits. It's not an emotionalism. Most people may, and even in this room, may think of Christianity as something that that gets hyped up on emotionalism or something that may get injected by that. That's when you feel closest. But the affection here, when he even says this language, the affection of Christ Jesus is a much more profound word than just an emotional feeling towards them or a thanks for the gift or thanks for sending Epaphroditus. And I think we need to look at that this morning. I I, I am tired, I will say, not just physically. I am tired emotionally 
of how it is so easy for the church in a place where we have overlapping worlds to find itself just being one of many worlds. I can easily do the same thing. It is very easy in a place like Nashville specifically. There was a group of ours, even in our Connect group, we had this discussion some some odd weeks ago about how Nashville is so disassociated where you may have, maybe your children go to school here. Maybe you work over here. Maybe you go to church over here. Maybe you live in this neighborhood and you identify with that. There are so many overlapping worlds here. How do they all fit? Is the church just one or does it actually help you make sense of all of them? And if it is just one, we need to really talk about what the problem is. Because this letter is telling us something much more profound. And you will see this morning, even in Philippians, Philippi, the people that were a part of this church were all over the place. So how does it work? It works through two things, affection and connection. Affection, this deep-rooted word that we're going to mine out a little bit. And then connection. How does it really work? How does the affection of the heart actually work into the lives? Is there real connection between people? And is that here, and even our church, at Christ Presbyterian? Well, look at this. The two themes here of affection and connection, especially first, affection. It's easy to look at this, even verse three. I thank my God and all my remembrances of you. Your partnership with the gospel, uh, first day until now. Verse six, and I'm sure of this, he who began a good work in you uh, will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way. I mean, there's all this emotional connection. But what Paul is wanting us to see here is that it's different. This, this letter, Paul, a Jew, was writing to Philippi, which was a purely Roman city. In a lot of ways, it was actually a small uh, a small Rome in many aspects. A lot of it was uh, kind of like a city it was actually named after Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. This city had a lot of backing to it, a lot of history, a lot of power, and it was connected in the Roman Empire in a huge way. So for, for Paul going there, it actually would be a really difficult thing. Most cities he went to, he looked for a synagogue, a place of connection to share Jesus and say, okay, let's talk about how this works in Judaism. In this place, there wasn't that. This is a place that was very foreign and all the people were foreign, even in their overlapping worlds. And so when he begins here and he says, my partnership in the gospel with you, He's talking about a deep-seated thing that someone here invested in him, that these people invested in him, poured their life in him. They became what is called partakers of grace. They took up the life of Paul and they said, we're gonna gonna enter into this with you no matter where you go. That affections are not something fickle. They weren't the circumstance. They weren't Paul's message came and it was just so great. And then when he left, because he's not with them, he's in prison. So how do their affections stay? How are they rooted? Because they can go all over the place. It awakens something. Here's what the word affection is. Affections are something that awakens something still in you. It's when you come in contact with something that stirs in you so much that you go, oh my gosh, you just have this silence of, of sympathy and desire for that thing. It's an affection. It's, it's not something that you, that you just are pursuing. You stir up an emotionalism. It's something that awakens in you something else. It's by coming in contact with it. 
In fact, the word for affection here is, is the most expressive thing that Paul could have used in Greek. It's actually this, listen to this, it's for gut or intestines. Doesn't sound really, you know, frou-free, does it? In other words, it means inward parts. Here's what it means. The heart, hold on, liver, lungs, and other guts, a straining after. Here's what it's like. Listen, C.S. Lewis wrote uh, about loves, and this is one of the ways he kind of distinguishes this. I love what he says. He says, this is considered what's called appreciative love. There's need love, which says of maybe another person, a man, of a woman, I cannot live without her. There's gift love, which longs to give maybe that loved one or, or that person happiness, comfort, protection, if possible, wealth. But there's appreciative love. Listen to this. Gazes and holds its breath, and it's silent. Appreciative love rejoices that such wonder even exists if not for him. It's the moment, I'll tell you what it's like. It's the moment after sitting in my bed, writhing in pain with isolation, unable to go out the door because I don't want to get anybody else sick, hearing my boys in the backyard and pulling up the shades from our bathroom and just standing there like a total creeper watching my children. (laughs) And here's what I felt. I felt this gut level as they were running around doing their, I mean, what brothers do in the backyard. It was this gut punch of silence. I couldn't say anything. All I could do is watch. And what overwhelmed me deep within me was an appreciation, a thankfulness, a sitting. I couldn't do anything about it. It wasn't a need. It was something I could give to them. It was something that welled up so deep to say, thank you that I get to experience even my eyes falling on these two precious humans that remind me of how affection is to be. That is affection. Affection is those moments where your eyes fall on that someone or something that punch you so deep, that that well up from deeper. It's not a, oh, it's exciting. It's, It's so grounded. It's so solid. It's almost like you can't even move your feet. And it leaves you breathless. It makes you going, how do I get to receive this? even my eyes to gaze upon it and be so thankful. That is affection. It's an impact. It's something so powerful that Paul felt here. You see, it wasn't something that they just sent him. It actually, they did send him a gift and they sent him Epaphroditus to take him the gift. It wasn't that. Notice it was from the first day until now, he says, their affection. There's something about this relationship that when he hears their name, when he knows they are near and they have sent even a reminder of them, even when they are not even in the same space, that it punches him so deep that the affection for these people and he knows their affection for him that's so mutual leaves him breathless. He is in silence of thankfulness, what's appreciative love. How in the world can he experience that? How in the world can we actually know what that's like? 
Because he is, he is reflecting it. He knows it comes not a love of himself. He knows that he has a savior. Listen, the affection of Christ Jesus. It's out of a deep resource. It's out of someone else looking at him then he can look at them. I, I wanna say something. It may be simplistic, but it is deeply profound. When was the last time you actually felt the gut punch presence silence, breathless, still, feet unable to move, affection that Jesus has on you. Because you and I will never experience the reality of affection for someone else and break out of isolation unless we understand that Jesus' eyes for us are that profound. That Jesus himself, the God of the universe, the one who was the opposite of isolated, actually had in his gut, in his sense, a such profound, deep love for us because he came in contact with us. Notice, this is the difference of Christianity and anything else. I wanna remind you of this. Look, there are a lot of contact points between Christianity and other religions, but this is the overwhelming difference, is that God sends his son Jesus in actual flesh to come in contact with us. Remember what affection is. It sits waiting to be stirred. When it comes in contact is when it springs forth because you're so appreciative of what is in front of you because it's been brought to you. Do you realize that is the gospel? Paul can look at them this way and they can look right back and the only reason they have any definition of love and affection is because they've actually experienced it from Jesus Christ. That's affection. Do you experience that anywhere? I didn't use the Preds games just as kind of a mere quip. Isn't it interesting? Hey, I will be the first and foremost to tell you. I will sit and record as much before and after one of those games because I care so much to come in contact with what I see on a screen. Does that happen when I come in contact with the person of Jesus? Many of you are going, well, he's not here. But you know what? He wasn't there to the Philippians. They heard the good news. They heard the reality that he has come in flesh, that he has walked among us, that he has done these things. It's not something out there. It's here. Do we believe our theology? Do we believe the reality that, that Jesus actually has done this so our affections can mean something? So I can actually care more about coming in contact with him and being breathless than I'm more breathless at watching an incredible hockey move. Fill in the blank for yourself. What is that affection that is, is only gonna give you a little bit? 
It may be a taste. Look, it may be a good thing. But affection here that he's talking about, affection of Christ Jesus. Think about if he's sitting in prison and he's writing a letter and the deepest profound isolation and loneliness, and you'll read later in Philippians where people were saying, you're washed up. Paul, if you're in prison, then you obviously have a problem. Then maybe this gospel isn't as good as you think it is. Don't you believe that he was thinking that and that he heard that and that that word spread just as fast? What grounds that affection from not being ripped apart? Is it circumstance? How do you go back to that? You have to go back to the scripture. You have to go back to the Bible. As simplistic as it sounds, if you want to brush up, you don't get this affection by coming to church and hearing me go, rah, 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 let's go do it. It doesn't happen. What happens is you come and you be honest, just like I'm being now, and saying, you know what? I came this morning because my son or daughter's graduating and we kind of, this is the nearest church. Or I came this morning because I come every Sunday and I love the songs. I came this morning because, you know what, maybe this, that. Hey, be honest that you're burned, cynical, bored, tired of church. Because your affections aren't stirred up by you manifesting them before you walk in these doors. They're stirred up by coming in contact with Jesus. That's it. That's the good news. Isn't that true with any relationship in your life? Isn't that true with, the, with, the, with the, the UK even made a minister of loneliness? Because they need a person to embody that. Do you think there's something to it? It's been done before. It's been done in the incarnation of Jesus. Look, and it does, if it stops there, if it stops with just the affection and you don't see any of the affection manifesting itself in the way that you connect to people around you, you have to ask the question, is it a real affection? Because the second thing that happens here is the connection. It's the actual reality of what happens here. It creates real connection to those around them. Look, if you flip to Acts chapter 16, you can see briefly, very briefly, a handful of the people, a slice of the people that actually are part of this church. When he says here that you are, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, let's talk about your partnership. Who are these you or who are these people? Acts chapter 16. Acts is a book that's, if you go to the, if you're in Philippians, you go to the left, or if you're on your phone, you can scroll uh, um, up a ways. It begins this way when Paul and and uh, Timothy and Silas are in Philippi, this city we've been talking about. In verse 11, it says, So setting sail from Troas, we made direct voyage to Samothrace, and following day with, uh, the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to, to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized in her household as well. She urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Look, 
This woman, Lydia, as Paul would travel to towns, was a fear of God. She actually wasn't Jewish, but she cared for what was going on in that religion. It gave order. You can see a couple hints in here. Lydia was a very successful businesswoman. Selling purple goods was royalty. It was a powerful, important industry. And so for her to be a part of that, this was a woman in that time who we would look at on Instagram or other ways and say, her life is ordered. That is what I want to be. She had it all together. But here's what was missing. It wasn't complete. What was it about the gospel that she needed? What was the good news that brought her to make a partner to Paul? It was the fact that when she was sitting there listening to Paul, that she had everything she thought was complete. Religion, business, family, all of it. Nothing seemed out of order. And yet the gospel penetrated her heart enough to say, you know what? You're not complete. You haven't reached that bar and nor will you. If you want to know what stirs your affections, is it to have everything in order or is it to know that there's a God of order who is the only one that can hold all these things together? She heard instead of laws, and many of you may come in this room and say, how can I leave and be better? Lydia didn't hear that. That's what she would want to hear. That's probably why she went back to that place of prayer. But what she heard instead was it's not about you being better. It's about the Jesus who has his affections on you because you can't be better. The very next after that was even, and we'll skip even down, they, Paul and Silas get in trouble and they get thrown in prison. And here is a complete opposite characteristic of someone who's a partner in the gospel. About midnight, Paul and Silas, verse 25, were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and the foundations, <clears throat> and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out, and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and he took them to the same hour, that same hour, uh, of the night and washed their wounds and ba- he, baptized, he was baptized as once, at once, he and his whole family. Look, here's a complete opposite character. A Roman soldier who's incredibly pragmatic. So pragmatic that, in fact, that when he sees that his pragmatism doesn't work, he's willing to take his own life. And what do Paul and Silas do? What do they do? Do they preach the word to him? Like Lydia? No. What do they do? They stay. Maybe he heard them singing hymns. Maybe he knew something. But what really transformed the Roman jailer? It wasn't that they were talking so much about the affections of Jesus. It was that they showed the affections of Jesus. As this man was about to take his own life, instead of the gates open and they take off. They said, no, 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 we're here. We haven't gone anywhere. How many of us 
Think of the affection of Jesus as Jesus staying with us. If you want to show affection to other people, you first have to understand Jesus stays. All those moments that you think, oh, this is a perfect time for me to escape, to get out from underneath all the guilt that I have. Jesus says, no, 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 I'm here. The affection of Christ Jesus doesn't leave at the moment you get a free pass. He stays. And how much does that translate in our lives to one another? You want to actually have a church that changes Nashville. You actually want us to do this together? Let's do it. Let's do it. But let's stay. What's going to transform it? Especially, I hope there are people here this morning that have come and maybe you're kind of coming back to church and you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Church, this is the place where everybody kind of comes together. Maybe it's a, a Sunday country club. Maybe this is whatever. Maybe, I don't know what your hangups are about church. But would Christ Presbyterian Church change the way that you see Jesus because of the way we stay for one another? In the midst of all sorts of affliction, in the midst of all circumstances, do you realize, think about this, if Paul is writing from prison, how much more does that Roman jailer have affection towards his former prisoner hearing these words about being a partner in the gospel now? Whoa. This is the affection of Christ Jesus that causes connection of the church. These are people in different worlds. Did you notice that? Lydia, Roman jailer, have nothing to do. These are only two of many. Nothing to do with one another. Here's the beauty of it. There are so many people in this room from all sorts of walks of life. What connects you? What causes this affection to be the same? Is it the fact that you live and work and play in the same circles? Nashville's gonna continue to do what it does. But the difference should be our affection for one another in Jesus no matter what neighborhood, school, job, whatever. That our one language is the gospel. It's the gospel. See, here's the beauty of this table. The beauty of this table right here is this very thing that Paul says in this that I love. Verse six, the whole spectrum right here. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in Christ Jesus. He who began the good work, that is God, will carry it on to completion in Christ Jesus. There is not one moment on that timeline where you are out of affection with Jesus. He's carrying you on to completion. He has you in his grip. You see, this table is a table of affection. It's affection the fact that, that you can't come to this table and hope you feel emotional. You have to taste the bread and the wine to feel and experience the affection of Jesus towards you. You ever thought about that? The sacraments of word and what you just heard preached and that you're about to take here and this meal, a meal stirs your affections because you take it in. Not just because you heard about it. Right? Some of you are excited to go to Hattie B's today. It's not till you actually pop that hot chicken in your mouth and you experience the sweat and the heartache till you know it's good. 
This is the meal of Jesus that he has set for you because of his affection. And here's what's beautiful. It's set until he comes again. And here's the, the other part of that, his connection. Who comes to this table? Who's admitted to this table? Is it just one kind of person? Is it just a Lydia? Or is it just a Roman jailer? I don't know everybody's story in here, but every one of your stories is a part of this story. You are connected. Even if there are people in here you're like, I don't know if I could ever be friends with that person or know that person or have interests that connect. You're connected because you share the same body and blood. This is the connection. Should we show that not just when we come to the table, but when we leave it and go out there? This table is set in that way. Let's stand together. As we do, and the children are brought back in.